It was a just invasion of liberation. June 1944, Allied forces invade the northwest coast of France seeking to liberate Normandy from occupying German forces. Think of it. For 70-some years, seven decades, France has hosted elaborate, multi-day, multi-site memorial observances of the D-Day invasion. For seven decades. One of the reasons for this sustained memorial is the sheer enormity of the invasion and its profound effects upon world history. Another reason, certainly, is that hundreds of thousands of lives were sacrificed in the liberation of Normandy when all the body count was made. Hundreds of thousands. To know that people sacrifice their lives to liberate yours is strong incentive to never stop honoring their memory. For more profound reasons here this morning, the followers of Jesus have gathered for 2,000 years around this table. We do so to remember the just invasion of liberation for our souls. The enormity of this event is unequaled, as is its achievement in salvation history. Here we remember that Jesus Christ invaded this world to defeat the forces of spiritual darkness, to conquer death, and to liberate His people from the bondage of sin. So at this table, we remember that He died for us so that we might live in Him and for Him. But what further distinguishes this memorial is that our liberator rose from the dead. And that changes a lot of things. We do not gather here at a tomb. We do not gather to pay our respects once a year and then walk away enjoying our lives. But this liberator rose from the dead. And that changes everything. So this memorial is not only a reminder of what Jesus did, it is an act of communion with the One who did it, with our risen Savior. It is communion, that is, if we qualify to come. The only people qualified to commune here with the risen Savior are those who have God's approval. So as we approach this table, we prepare to remember Christ's sacrifice But as we do, let's meditate on the liberation that qualifies us to commune with the risen and conquering Christ with His body in this memorial meal. And I invite you to that end of Romans chapter 3. We'll look first of all in the first chapter at verse 18 just to get our sense of this familiar book and this section of it. But as we make our way to chapter 3, Paul says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A very major statement in the book of Romans. I should maybe have said this a step earlier, but um, as we feed on this text today, we have looked at this text in the past evangelistically 
for those who know not Christ as Savior and develop it very differently. But here today, we focus particularly upon believers. Certainly is appropriate and excellent consideration for those that do not know Christ, but we look here today particularly at this text as believers. And so to that end, we're going to go down fairly deep into it. The task here will not to be to entertain or to interest as such, but to draw upon the knowledge we have of Christ and to look very carefully at this text as we prepare for what we are coming before today in this meal. So with that in view, we start in 118 where we read of the wrath of God. From 118 down through chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul argues from reason, experience, and the Scriptures that God's wrath is against sinners and that that includes everyone. Paul, as one commentator would say, it seals off all human avenues of escape from God's wrath. He works through this section of Scripture to make sure that no one stands having a sense of righteousness before God that comes from within. That is on our own merits. The Gentiles violate the law of God that's stitched into their conscience. The Jews who are entrusted with the life-giving law of God, they are unique, they are chosen, they have received these living words, and yet they don't keep them. We might see the Jews with arms folded and a smirk on their face. Yeah, those Gentiles, they're always violating their conscience, which is all that they have. They can't even do that. But we have the Word of God. And they did. But they didn't keep it. And Paul argues that point. God is angry with people not because He is vindictive or impulsive, but because people defy Him and suppress His truth, which He gives only for their good. It's not as if God's Word is mere opinion and suggested advice. God's Word is life. And violating it is death. And as a God of love and compassion, He cannot stand by when His creatures break that law. And so He is angry with sin. He is angry with sinners because He is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and His Word is utterly true, and breaking it is complete insanity. I wonder as we consider these thoughts today, is God justly angry with sinners in your view of God? Is He justly angry with sinners? If you think the idea of a wrathful God is distasteful, or outdated. There's only one reason, and that is that you have a twisted view of God and an inflated view of yourself. We recoil at the idea of an angry God because we do not see the world the way that He sees it. And we do not know Him for who He is. And we deify ourselves. Paul writes to warn us of the truth saying in conclusion to God's chosen people who are indeed entrusted with the life-giving written revelation of God's will that all stand condemned. And here it is as we look, first of all, at the bad news in verses 19 and 20. The bad news is that no one can gain God's approval on Judgment Day by obeying His Word. 
This Paul brings out as the final evidence that all stand condemned. Verse 19, Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. This is now the conclusion of what he's been saying since 118. He says in 319, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You can see in the text above, in light of the string of Old Testament references that Paul has just cited, law here probably speaks generically of the Bible, of the Old Testament, rather than specifically the Mosaic law. And those under the law, in context, seems to refer to the Jews specifically. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, even God's chosen people is the point. It is a greater to lesser argument. If those entrusted with His Word, those chosen as His nation, violate His Word, indeed everyone does. And so every mouth is stopped before the perfect, just, and holy sovereign of the universe. All self-defense is silenced. God's Word tells us, for instance, not to lie, not to slander, not to hate, not to lust. To be content with what we have. To love God with all of our heart and our neighbor as we love ourselves. But for this law, if we look at it honestly, there is nothing but silence. There's no self-defense. Then to make sure that we get it, and in case some of his Jewish readers still think their obedience may save them, he says, verse 20, for by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you would think, if anyone would think, Paul says, if I obey God's law, he will accept me. If I do good, he will receive me. He will approve of me. If I just obey him in what he said, I'll be okay. That thought is exactly wrong, says Paul. God's law does not provide the opportunity for me to prove my goodness. God's good law exposes my incapacity to keep it. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So to learn what God demands of us is to learn that I am in bondage to disobedience to that word that He's revealed. The law has a diagnostic function not a medicinal function. That is, it exposes the disease of our sin. It cannot cure it. It's not because there is a cure lacking in it. It's because of who we are. But as an MRI is a good and helpful tool in medicine, it never heals anyone. Someone went to the doctor and said, I'm going to get an MRI and find out if I have a brain tumor. And they go through the MRI and the doctor says, you have a brain tumor. And that person says, well, boy, it's good I came in today that the MRI took away my cancer. He said, well, you're not understanding this. It's revealing you have cancer. It's not healing anything. That's too simplistic. But it does, to some degree, reveal how the law works. It shows me my wrong. It is God's Word. It is right. And it's better to keep it than to break it. 
But in this context, what Paul is striving to stress here is that it is diagnostic. It says, I'm a sinner, over and over. It has a finger that points at my nose and says, you have broken me. Again and again, we break his law. So no one is qualified to commune with Jesus at this table based alone on your obedience to God. Your qualification to commune here cannot come from within. Our qualification must come from outside of ourselves. To picture it from the beginning here, in occupied France, there was not in World War II going to be any answer from inside France. There was an effort that was being made in resistance to the occupying forces, but the salvation was going to have to come from somewhere else. The occupying force was too strong. And that's true of the occupying force of sin in our lives. It's too strong. F.F. Bruce writes that the Roman poet Horace used to chide writers of tragedies in his day for their impatient use of the literary device of resolving a challenging plot twist by introducing a god into the narrative. I have this same complaint. It drives my children crazy as I complain about the stories that are told in movies and how impatient and cheap they can become when they go with a devil for the bad guy. The guy that's always at the right place, that knows everything, that's constantly breaking through glass to scare people and all that. They're not people. And it's laziness in the writing. That's what Horace is saying. Don't be lazy by that, like that. And in their writing, in their context, they'd introduce a God into the story to fix everything because they, as a writer, couldn't figure out how to fix it. Horace said this, Do not bring a God onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. This is that stage. This problem with sin that we all experience and endure takes nothing less than the God of the universe to solve. In fact, nothing less will do. This is the bad news. Secondly, the good news we find beginning at verse 21 with these arresting words, but now, I mean, to this point, it's been very gloomy. It's been as gloomy as it gets. From chapter 1, verse 18 and following here, now with the conclusion of 19 and 20 of chapter 3. But now we find the good news. There is another way to gain God's approval. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul turns here now to another path to God's approval. This but now is incredibly sweet. We find no hope whatsoever. We find ourselves in bondage to sin, but now hits us like the buzz of airplanes on D-Day from the West hit the occupied French. It's hope. It's hope of a salvation from somewhere else, from outside of us. Now, in verse 19, you see that word that begins that, that, that verse. 
It's a simple transition to a new point. But here in verse 21, this now carries something of that temporal sense. But this is a new day. Now that Christ has come. Now that we are in this new era of salvation history. A righteousness of God has been manifested. A new way has been made clear. Now, the way has always been by faith. But here we have the manifestation of a righteousness of God apart from the law. Not that the law ever saved, but there's a new day is his point. So obviously this right standing with God cannot come by obeying the law Thus, Paul speaks of a righteousness that is apart from it. Now, apart from law, in the sense that it has nothing to do, not, that, that is, it's not apart from law in the sense that it has nothing to do with the Old Testament. You notice his next phrase there in verse 21. Not that it has nothing to do with it, because the law and the prophets bear witness to it. A right standing with God has always come by means of faith, not works. But the manifestation of this righteousness is no longer found in the Old Testament Scriptures, but is now seen in its fulfillment to be, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Our approval by God, our righteous standing before Him, One's qualification to commune at this table is unrelated to our good works. Now, there's an argument that could be made that there is a place for good works in all of this, but in the approval of God to come, it's not related to good works. My access to God's approval and fellowship with Him is through believing It is through faith in Jesus Christ, His crucifixion to pay the penalty of my sin, His resurrection to free us from sin and judgment. So my rescue from bondage to sin comes not from within, but from above, from Him. Thirdly, Paul now says, everyone needs this approval from God. Everyone needs this approval from God. Everyone. And we'll stress that. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Picking up there, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No distinction, it would seem in context, between Jew and Gentile. Between those who are not God's chosen people and those who are God's chosen people and trusted with the words of God. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, with or without the revealed Scriptures. So again, the Jewish thinking can be, the Gentiles do not have God's law, so it's really not very possible for them to please Him, and they do a very good job of rebelling against Him by suppressing the truth that they see in creation every day, by violating their conscience all the time. But we have the words of God. We have the counsel of God. He has instructed us and taught us how to walk in righteousness. Paul says, no, it includes everybody. All have sinned. Every human being disobeys God. We've all sinned, therefore we all continue. It's a present tense. We all are continuing to fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? I continue to fall short of the glory of God. 
Well, it certainly involves failing to glorify God. I don't glorify Him. We could say that fairly easily. But perhaps the fuller idea is that we fall short of conformity to His glorious image, which we were created to reflect. So there is here an echo of the fall. I fall short of the glorious presence of God. I fall short of walking in communion with Him, the one whose image I was created to bear. We fall short of who we are meant to be because of sin. But, number four, Jesus Christ is the source of the approval that we need from God. So All of this labor to say, I don't come to this table, I don't come with God's approval because of my labor... We need the approval of God. We need to be justified by Him. But Jesus is the source of that approval that we need. Verse 24. We are justified by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So all have sinned and all are justified by His grace as a gift. My justification or righteous standing or final approval before the throne of God is something that He achieves, not that I achieve. It is the result of His extension of grace, not what I deserve. It is a gift, not a wage for all who believe. And this gift finds its source in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Those who are united by faith to Jesus crucified and risen, are liberated from condemnation for their sin. Remember the hymn we sing sometimes? How fitting it is here. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We have been redeemed from the eternal judgment our sins deserve by the invasive rescue of Jesus Christ. There is a righteousness of God. That phrase can be taken very simplistically. There is a rightness of God. It can be taken in a very complicated way as we work out what is the righteousness of God. It certainly includes the divine element that God in His wisdom has chosen in His ways in accordance with His promises to save a people for His name. His righteousness flows. His just plan is complete. It involves certainly a human element. And the acquittal of sin and a right standing before Him. But this righteousness of God comes ultimately through Jesus Christ. We are justified by God's grace as a gift that He has given. And He has given it to us through the redemption that is earned by Christ Jesus when He lays down His life to pay the penalty of sin. His active righteousness was necessary to that end, but was not the end of that end. It was His death that was necessary to purchase our redemption. It is by His blood. This One, this Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. 
to show God's righteousness then ultimately. So the Father put the Son on display as a sacrifice and satisfied God's wrath against sin. We put Christ on display as crucified here around this table, identifying with God's saving plan. And all that could ever be done to punish a sinner for his or her sin was suffered by Jesus on the cross. So giving His Son to pay this horrific penalty satisfies the anger of God against injustice, against sin, against the rebellion that is ours. And this message is to be received by faith. That is, Christ's blood, His death for me, is to be trusted unto salvation. I put my trust and my confidence not in what I can do, but I put my trust and my confidence in what Jesus Christ has chosen to do for me. That is how we come qualified and approved of God. And God, in all of this, number five, is vindicated by this salvation plan. The middle of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. To show God's righteousness. Here we witness a shift, a slight shift in the meaning of the word as used above. Something in God's saving plan subjects him to the charge of wrongdoing. What is that something? This is it. He had passed over former sins. It's a reference to time prior to the cross and this new age of salvation. If you look at it in a certain light, God saved sinners, He forgave sinners, and He never really punished sin. I mean, that lamb dying on the altar is really not doing it. How can God be just? How can He be perfectly holy and perfectly pure and forgive sinners without ever exacting the justice that that sin demands? This is a problem. And we need to discuss the justification of God in this problem. But Paul now brings that to resolution. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, in His patience, as He worked out His salvation plan, He had passed over former sins. They had never been rightly judged. And so the Old Covenant sacrifices covered sin provisionally, always looking forward to Christ's fulfilling sacrifice for sin. Withholding the full penalty that sin deserves, God is justified. Now we see that in the sacrifice of Christ to which everything in the Law and the Prophets pointed Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness. It was to demonstrate that righteousness that we might see it at this present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Before the cross, God showed His unusual mercy because He knew He would one day demonstrate justice by pouring out wrath upon the Son. But at this present time, that is in the era of salvation in Christ, God has shown Himself to be 
just. As we see Christ hanging on the tree and crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There we can no longer charge God with failing to judge sin. He judged it in the most thorough way possible. And He is the justifier. By placing our faith in Christ's work, God saves His people from their sin and justly justifies us. He approves of us with final, eternal approval on the merits of what Christ has achieved. This is not because we are perfectly righteous in ourselves now. This approval is not because of some legal fiction that we just pretend that we are righteous. God pretends that we're righteous. But this is true in the sense that He has genuinely justified His people. We have been truly forgiven. We do not any longer stand under condemnation. As Douglas Moo puts it, Christ in His propitiatory sacrifice provides full satisfaction of the demands of God's impartial Invariable justice. Christ, in His propitiatory sacrifice, provides full satisfaction of the demands of God's impartial, invariable justice. So God is just even in justifying sinners because His righteous character is upheld in Jesus' suffering judgment for us. The cosmic implications are mind-numbing. And we consider this work of Christ and its implications in our lives and through history. This memorial meal then is a communion in the sacrificial death of Jesus who died to pay the price of our liberation Our liberation from sin and our liberation from God's just wrath against our sin. This redemption was not achieved and could not be achieved by anything that we did right. It was achieved by the blood of Christ, by His substitutionary sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And it was made available by God's gracious pleasure to all who believe. So we gather here as the redeemed body of Christ, as believers baptized into His name to commune with Christ, declaring here at this table by this ordinance that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's bow before Him in prayer. We are awed, Father, by Your plan of redemption. We are awed by Your mercy and by the gift of this grace. And we come now to this table as sinners. But we come to this fellowship meal as the redeemed.
remembering Christ's cosmic deliverance. For 2,000 years, remembering what Jesus did. Memorializing it as He instructed, but not as an end in itself, but as a prospect of our ultimate glorification when we will no longer fall short of Your glory and ultimately now as a communion with the risen and reigning and returning Christ. In that spirit we gather around this table. With that hope we gather here and remember what Christ did and the privilege that we have to participate in that achievement. Steer us now in our hearts to draw close to You as we commune with You, our living Savior.